0: Seventy-one of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interviewed Stevie Andrea of Nine Finger Games and asked them about the design and development of their Bullet Heaven deck-building hybrid, Heretic's Fork. This is a very interesting game. Most games, in fact all games, featured on The Sausage Factory are interesting, but this one really, really caught my eye. The premise is that you're a civil servant working in hell sorting through, well, how can I put it, souls, damned souls, that are desperately trying to escape for obvious reasons. You must stop them, and you do so by playing cards. Yes, there's a, basically a big tower in the middle of the screen, and you are then playing cards in various combinations to increase the power of this tower and its denizens as they go out taking out all these creatures before, souls, as I say, before they reach the tower and destroy it. It's a remarkable game made in a little over a year. Shocking. just How they, how Stevie did this. Well, we delve into how he did it. Some shortcuts, very interesting shortcuts, some you would be quite surprised to hear about. The music is by Occam's Laser, and the there's a link in the show notes showing where you can buy the music for Heretic's Fork, which is featured in this episode of The Sausage Factory. So... Without further ado, let's listen to me from a relatively recent past talk to Stevie about the creation of Heretics Fork. Chris, take it away. Hello, Stevie. Hi, Chris. Could
1: you tell us who you are and what you do? Uh, Sure. So I'm Stevie. Uh, I'm a games developer. I'm sort of a solo games developer. I never know if I can call myself that anymore. Um, But yeah, I'm a... Games developer. I've been making Zapping Bygone as my first title, and now I'm just released Heretics Fork. And yeah, I am solo developer, so I, I do most of everything: um, programming, art, game design. a dabble in sound. Yeah, everything.
0: Impressive stuff. Very impressive stuff. Uh, I discovered Heretics Fork at WASD, and that's why how I managed to get in contact with Stevie, the game on the show, to talk about its creation because. I also spoke about it at Games of Jobs episode recently, a podcast, um, and uh, they, they really gravitated towards it. So, yes, thumbs up. So, right. really, really happy to have you on the show. But before we delve into Heretics uh, Fork, we need to find out a little bit about you, Stevie.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, could you tell us, how did you make your start making flashy, lighty video games?
1: So, whenever I think of like a point where I'm like that's where I started. I can always go further back. And probably the furthest back I can think of is times. Sp- no, not times. Sp- it's actually probably Age of Mythology and discovering the map editor on on that when I was I didn't know how old it was. I was probably 12, maybe 13. Realising there's a map editor on that and just messing around and moving things. I didn't know what I was doing. turning to Game Dev at that point. Obviously, I just always found it fun to like do weird stuff in games and try and break them. And then it was Time Splitters Two, that had a map editor, so I jumped into that. That was a couple of years later, probably, or maybe I've got those two timelines mixed up, but who knows. And then fast forward to college, college in England, so that was like 15 years old. Yeah, on the main computers, like on the the IT computers, that Game Maker was installed, and I just didn't want to do whatever the teacher was doing or had me to do. So I spent most of the day just on Game Maker, just messing around, trying to make a game. And it just kind of evolved from there. It started with just messing with map editors and things whenever I could, and if anything creative in a game I would jump onto. And then when I realized game development was not actually a thing that was obtainable, I would move to that and just do game development in GameMaker as just a hobby for, for years, really. Then I went to university. When I went to university, I originally chose game development and then swapped it over to web app development in my first year. And the reason I did that was just because I didn't really get on with the people who were in the game development course. Not that I didn't get on with them, but they all graduated from the same college. So they all had this weird click already. And I came from somewhere like a different city. So I didn't know anyone. And they were all already had these friendship groups. So I jumped from that to web app development. I wasn't really interested in web that web app development, but I was just interested in you know university and having fun. So I did that. And then after that, I graduated and then um, went to a QA. I did QA for an online gambling company. Realized that online gambling was not games. It was nowhere near games. If anything, it's exploitive of anything, games. So then I quit that and then done a Kickstarter for Zappling Bygone. And then, two years after, no, about a year after that, I released Zapping Bygone and then jumped straight into Heretics 4. I've kind of worked on that for a year and a month and then I just released it last month. So that is a full summary.
0: Fantastic. There's one key element, key point I want to pluck out. You may find it surprising, but that transition from map editing to actually game creation using a high-level language tool, which is Game Maker. you may disagree, but it generally is. There's mm-hmm. one aspect of it. I'm just fascinated when want to hear your take on it because it is a barrier to some. But the creation of scripts... And macros and that kind of thing how easy did you find that how did that making doing that action of actually writing parts of relatively rudimentary but nonetheless code um how have you how did you find that how did, was it something you immediately glommed onto or did you have to like do some reading
1: i think the main thing i used was youtube tutorials at the time, off the top of my head, it was a guy called Wizardy. I don't know if he's still around, um, but he he was like the guy for game maker tutorials. I just kind of started which, by copying him and seeing what he was doing and trying to make that work myself. My buddy at college, who did the same thing as me and just kind of had fun this game maker project that we found on the system. He was always like he's more intelligent than me, so he was like doing the the programming and just trying to like make me understand it, and I was just trying to do the art. And like making him understand that games should look good as well. So it was basically just me learning off him, and then him learning off Wizardy, and that kind of three things working together for me to learn it.
0: Thanks, thanks for that. I just love hearing these little morsels of stories about certain milestones in one's development as a game creator. And That's one of them is actually understanding the code, so to speak. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not trying to make a like a, make it seem mythical. But I think it is important to know. It's quite a milestone. So, next question. What are your biggest influences as a creator?
1: Biggest influences? Hmm. I would say if you asked me a few years ago, I'd probably say other games. Now it's probably moved on more towards like TV series. I think it's basically what I'm ever I'm spending most of my time on in that year is what I'd probably grab most influence from. Um, so recently it's been mostly like TV, I think.
0: Any examples? What
1: kind of genres? Is it sort of yeah. horror or, or the crime thrillers or a bit of both? I have this weird thing where I will come up with a game idea or even just an element of whatever game I'm working on. I think it's this new creative idea that I've come up with and then realize it's actually something that i've remembered from a tv series or from a game or from a book and re- and it's not actually my idea and uh that happened recently with um with severance have you seen severance it's, I think it's an apple tv yes so that so i don't want to spoil it but um it's basically people who when they go to work they s- kind of swap consciousnesses um and in my game heretics fork um that's not really what's happening. It's, they're more like AI clones of of real people. A lot of the characters in Heretics Fork are that. Um, and it's kind of just alluded to in the story. It's not really that direct. But um, I thought that was like a new idea. And I realised I'd probably just plucked it from severance and just adjusted it in my brain without realising. Such is the way of
0: things, certainly influences. They're not normally overt. They're in your subconscious, mm-hmm. which is why they're influencing you whether you like it or not. Okay, next question. What video game
1: developer do you admire most and why? Ooh, that's a good one. I listened to a few of your podcasts, a few episodes, uh, before I came on, and I knew this was going to be a hard question. (laughs) I should have thought of something beforehand.
0: Normally it's the third question that stumps me. You, you, (laughs) you. Well, I haven't glide. had the third one, have I? You've so glided <laughs> through that. No, you've had the third one already. It's the influences one. You've you glided oh, right. through it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so go on. What's, what's the people you point I at think, and go, um, you there, carry on with what you're doing?
1: I think I've got two answers for that. I think the first answer is is kind of generic, but I really admire people who make games that aren't incredibly successful but do pay the bills and then just keep doing that for their whole career people who can like find satisfaction without trying to chase that like indie hit dream and just make games because they like making games and and have found their niche to be able to keep doing that one person that comes to mind who i can't remember their name but on twitter if you search i think veteran indie that dude he makes like solitaire card games um and he's been doing it for years and years and years and he's just happy doing that i really envy that mindset to just be able to keep pumping out games and just make it into a career without going absolutely crazy with it and having a life while also making games. I admire those people a lot. And that's where I'd like to be able to get to at some point. Excellent. And I do have another one who is mm-hmm. a specific person. Okay. Um, Lef, Lef, uh, Matt Griffin, um, he does the marketing and stuff for Hollow Knight and for Silksong and for Quo um, One now as well. And he had similar starts to me, or where I am now, in Game Maker. He started off in Game Maker, and he's kind of evolved from there in these big titles. I really like the titles that he's had a part in as well. So I do definitely admire him. Next question, then. What are you playing right now, Stevie? What am I playing right now? Um, it's kind of a boring answer, but I'm trying to play less games, and I'm trying to spend more time away from the PC. It's not working at all. But um, it means that mostly because of my wrist. My wrist really hurting from working too much on a PC and I'm trying to stop working on a PC or at least stop playing games on a PC after work, which is just me sitting in the same chair. Um, So I'm trying to play games less. But when I do play games, at the moment, it's just Smite, the MOBA. Okay. I, I, I enjoy jumping in and playing that.
0: I remember seeing that at a show many, many, many eons ago when it was just being launched. And I looked at it and went, well, why why would you do over shoulder moba? That's the worst idea ever. And <laughs> it turns out I was wrong. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Good stuff. Haven't heard that for a while. It's great, to, great to hear. It's still going.
1: Yeah, um, it's, it's sort of is. It's, I think it, I think it's dwindling. Um, but I've never got into like the competitive side of it anyway. So even if no one plays it, as long as I can find a lobby, I'm I'm not bothered.
0: Okay. Well, that's the end of the first half.
1: Well done. I survived
0: so let's move on to so the second half of the show where we'll be we'll be delving deep heretics full. We delve into Fork, to make it. Make clear, it's a video game. Look it up on Google. Careful, because it's also something else. So, <laughs> a strange torture device. But it's not that. But could you tell us, in video game terms, what is Heretics Fork?
1: In video game terms, uh, yes. So it is. It is a tower. It's a really weird genre. It's a tower defense. Um, you can tell that I never actually had to pitch this uh, to many people because I haven't really got like a pitch for it. You can do I this. Was, uh, I believe in uh, you. Go on. All right, It is a tower defense, deck builder, horde survival game. When I say that, I mean like vampire survivor type game, all mashed up into one where you have to defend a rift from sinners that are trying to escape hell using the cards that you get from the deck building aspect to build up the tower and become powerful enough to kill them.
0: <laughs> well, just, you know, eradicate them, because they're already dead, technically. But, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> double, double death them. Double, double death, you know, to, just to remove them from the good place. I mean, the bad place. Um, but um, we'll Keep them there. <laughs> and keep them there, yeah. It's a pretty good summary. I like the fact that you call it a tower defense, and then we thought of it like that because it is a stationary tower in the middle, it doesn't move at Mm -hmm. all, you can't change it it's in the middle of the screen and things gravitate towards it in a desperate attempt to flee um, the bad place and uh, you're stopping them from doing that because that's your job for you are taking on the role of a civil servant and they kind of, you know, they get emails, oh boy do they get emails from upper (laughs) management and corporate as they say and it's just, the game is filled with pathos very dry, desert-dry sense of humour throughout. But you did mention deck-building, and this is the point I want to raise uh, and just talk about now in Heretic's Fork, because while ostensibly it is a tower defence game, without being able to have the ability to to know how to manipulate the cards you're presented with, It's very much an anchor around which Heretic's Fork is built. I may be wrong about this, but that's the feeling I get when playing it, because I spend a great deal of time looking at the cards, trying to optimise them, play them at the right time, banish them from one's deck, because deck builders, if you don't know everyone, if you're not familiar with deck builders, you build your your deck, obviously, but there's some cards in that deck you do not want. So, you actually toss them, you destroy them, you get rid of them from your deck. So, it's an anti build, if you like. Like, this is guff, I don't want this. And you just banish it. Alternatively, you can combine cards and combine them. And then, when you do, you get a more powerful one, which may be better or not. (laughs) Depends. Depends what you're trying to do. I just want to ask how have you found merging these very different. Types of experiences. Well, one minute you want to create the optimum killing th- the machine or non-killing machine, if you get my meaning, of the tower, and it's and it's little wizards that come out from the side of it, versus the deck building. It's kind of a dichotomy, isn't it? It's like a, a split between these two. You somehow merged them. So, how did you find doing that? Was it
1: troublesome or is it relatively straightforward? Uh, it was. It was very difficult. My, my previous game was a Metroidvania, and the reason I bring that up is because you can, when you're making a game that's a very specific genre, you can just kind of copy other successful games in that genre, um, and then modify to make it your own, make it unique. But I went for a game that is different genres, but it's a mixed match of all of them, and it was incredibly hard to design. I was very humbled by the experience designing this game compared to my previous game so um, yeah it was very difficult um, we basically had to just keep iterating over that core gameplay loop and adding elements removing elements changing elements to come to something that was fun and it was not easy um, and it changed a lot at one point it was a tower defense game where you could actually place the towers wherever you wanted Um in its most raw version there was no combining cards and you literally just got the cards that it gave you and all you could do is play them and that sucked. (laughs) So yeah, it was just constant iteration over different versions of the game until we came up with something that actually was fun.
0: I want to talk about progress. Progress
1: in Heretics Fork is
0: based on your ability to destroy stuff and there is a sense, especially with the Vampire Survivor game which you make reference to, is you're trying the players are trying to reach that zenith point. They're trying to reach that point where they are. There is a risk of their destruction, but it doesn't actually achieve it, and they're actually just, just steamrolling everything. They're trying to get to that sweet spot, and there is a conceit in heretics' fault that maybe you can reach that, but you're always eventually probably going to get overrun. Maybe yeah. depends. Depends. Uh, sometimes you do actually reach that sweet spot. But I just want you to talk to me, really, about how you have designed the sense of progress in Heretics Fork because it is a roguelike as well, everyone. You unlock cards, the more you play, the more cards get unlocked, the more powerful they become. So tell us, how have you found designing progress for the player in Heretics Fork?
1: So that was a really interesting question because it was, it was a big challenge when developing this game. Um, so you're right where you say it's a roguelite and you do gain progress over time. But I wanted to find that sweet spot between having an outright better cards that you unlock because then it just feels like you just need to keep playing the game until you can beat it. I want like a level of skill to it or a level of strategy where you can beat the game with a default deck, which you can um, pretty easily if you know what you're doing um but then that came with another problem and that problem was the more cards you unlocked the bigger the um sorry the more cards you unlock the bigger of the pool of cards that you can get is which makes it harder to go for a specific build that you want to go for so when we first launched the game we had this problem where you the, the more cards you unlock, you should become more powerful, but you're actually becoming less powerful because the pool of cards you can grab from is too big, which lowers the chance of you getting the card you specifically want for your build. Um, So that was the, the one of the big problems we, we had had to address in one of our first updates. And that, the way we fixed that was, oh, I hope it's fixed. No one's telling me it's not fixed, so I hope it's fixed. <laughs> but um, the way we fixed that was when you, multiple stages throughout the game, it will give you cards and you can choose between those cards um, to add them to your deck we now scale the amount of choices you have in any given time that you get cards from the collection with your whole collection size so that's the first one where we, we, we tackled it so that the bigger your the pool of cards that you can get is the more options that the more choices you'll be given um, to offset that Problem of the cool of the pool of cards being too big, and then I also added a bunch of challenges. And the challenges' only requirements of unlocking the challenges is to have a certain collection size. And the the cards you get from reaching those challenges or beating those challenges is are cards that specifically give you more cards, so they provide more opportunities to grab cards from the collection. And the only way you unlock these new cards that allow you to do that is by having a bigger collection size. So it also offsets that issue as well. I hope that was understandable.
0: Yeah. You had to overcome a problem we didn't know you had. The beauty of game design. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. They've got awesome cards, when they're never going to draw them. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is <laughs> the perennial problem of deck building games. Is that Great. It's the last round of the game. I'm buying cards I'm never going to draw. S- yeah waste of time so yeah it is it's great that you've actually thought about this intelligently like you wouldn't but no it's uh, there's many ways of uh, dealing with that and i think it was a good one so third question i want to ask about this introduction maybe or maybe it's not something that's always been there but why in a tower defense game do you have creepers creepers by the way everyone are little creatures that are spawning uh, from a, a, a spawn point that act on your behalf. They are fighting you, fighting for you, automatically. You can't guide them in any way, but they're just spitting out loads of them. Basically, you call them a garrison. Or I call them little little wizards or little soldiers. Have they always been there? Is that always been the case, or were they introduced later? And why is this? There's, there's this split between the two different types of uh, abilities
1: or means by which you can uh, attack the souls that are trying to flee hell. Yeah, so they were there from pretty much the start, very, very early on. And that was mainly just a way of me making it so that you can separate the buffs into two specific obvious categories. Like this is a tower, this is a garrison. They look different, they do a different thing because I needed that variation to give the player choice. If there was only towers, which is definitely an option, You'd only have like the different damage types or the different types of projectiles. But when there's a clear distinction, like if you see it as like a branching tree of buffs, the earlier the, the, the variation is, the more <laughs> the more branches there are. And because the first choice when you when you roll a card is, is 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 it a tower or is it a garrison? That just creates way more options for me to create new cards. So I can create cards that only specifically benefit towers. Or garrisons or towers with holy damage or garrisons with holy damage. And then that just expands from there.
0: It does indeed. I love doing a combo. I uh, I do I have tried doing tower only. Sometimes it works, but it's nearly no, as satisfying as seeing one of your demons sort of rush off and squish a poor poor unsuspecting soul. <laughs> <laughs> Most entertaining. And the different types of damage and we could go on everyone, but we can't because we've got limited time. So limited, we've only got one more question left. And that is this. I want to talk about the low colour palette. Can't ignore it, it's there in your face. Heretics Fork has a very I'm not sure how many colours, could be four, five, I don't know. Maybe sixteen. Difficult to know. But it's low in number. The contrast is yeah, interesting how you've used these palettes, this palette in a relatively limited way. But I found it really Interesting how it makes it quite obvious where the enemies are coming in from because they're the animated black blobs with something floating in the middle of them, typically, not always. Always lots of tentacles as well, generally, I find. Big fans of tentacles in hell, apparently. But um, was this the intention? Was it all? Did it always look like this?
1: It always had a limited colour palette, but that colour palette has changed over time. Um, I always design things around limitations, because i'm not really an artist by trade i'm not really in anything by trade um very much uh, the bit of everything so when you create like a set of very specific rules that you have to stick to that creates that makes sure that your art is consistent and for me art in games the most important thing is is it consistent if your game is ugly it's fine as long as it's consistently ugly in the same way then it will end up looking good um so that's why I always have these restraints, and one of those big restraints, like you said, is the color palette. I try and stick to very specific colors, um, and that's for everything in the game. And um, for the even the the UI matches the same color palette as the the um, the enemies and stuff in game. I think the only time you should see like the pure black color is the enemies. So it's very specific of when the enemies where the enemies are on screen. Um, and then the different—the only time I break that color palette is for referencing specific damage types. So there's a specific color for Hellfire, for Holy and Unholy. And I'll only use those specific colors when I'm referencing those types of damage. Even if, if it's written on the card or if it's a projectile that's being created that does Unholy damage, I'll use that same purple color. So basically it's just creating restrictions on purpose to make sure my game, if it doesn't look good, at least it's consistent. And if it looks consistent, hopefully that will make it look good.
0: Definitely does, and I think it reminds me a lot of a game called Dome Keeper. Not sure if you're familiar with that, but the similar sort of um, though there's no deck
1: building there. You're just mining and mining
0: and mining. Really clever stuff.
1: It's interesting you mentioned the tentacles as well. Um, so when I say I, I designed around the restrictions, another restriction I have is because I made this game in a year. I didn't have time to like make draw these intricate enemies. So that's one of the reasons they're all black. Because um, You don't have to do the details inside the enemies, right? And when all the enemies are together, it just becomes one big black blob. Um, whereas if I was doing detailed drawing and shading of the colors within the enemy, then it's going to become a lot harder. And the same with the tentacles. Um, if everything had like a proper running animation, then it would take way longer. But if you just make everything a tentacle it's way easier to, to pump out more and more sprites because no one's going to look at a tentacle and be like, that looks like it's animating weird because it's literally a tentacle. You can go <laughs> in any direction.
0: Yeah, what do you know? What are you saying? Yeah. Nothing? We do you know about tentacles? Nothing. Sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> There's probably a tentacle expert listening and being like, Well, sure. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think you'll find. Anyway. I, I just think it's ingenious. All these little tips you're giving out describing how... Over a period of just over a year, you made it an extraordinary game. So Heretics Fork has been developed by Nine Finger Games. I have to ask, where does that name come from?
1: Uh, I named the company when I didn't think this was going to be a proper company, and it's just named after a character in a book. Um, nice. And what's yeah. the book? It's the Blade Itself series, I think there's three books. Um, the character's called Logan Nine Fingers.
0: Oh, ah, Okay. I thought it might have be been a nod to uh, Assassin's Creed, but no. Nah. <laughs> and uh, what platforms is Heretics Fork currently available on?
1: Apparently only available on uh, PC, uh, on Steam. It's the best place to grab it. It's a very uh, mouse game, so apparently only on PC, but we are thinking about consoles.
0: Indeed, no doubt you are. But... Stevie, it's been wonderful having you on the show. It genuinely has. You've been a very very open and honest guest talking about the creation of Heretics Fork.
1: Thanks for having me. And you're more than welcome
0: to come back talk about what's next cooking in your brain. Probably if I could take about 20 minutes. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stevie, for being such a great guest. Really, really fun and an entertaining Discussion about the creation of an equally fun and entertaining game. Do go check out Heretic's Fork. It's one of my favourite games of 2023. And it was an honour to have Stevie on to talk about it. So next week, we have Jay Siri of Revolution Industry to talk about Airship Kingdom's Drift. Do listen to that one. A very different game. A very expansive game. And another one I discovered at an expo. This is why I go to these things. Anyway, enough about me wibbling on about the stuff I've travelled to. Let's uh, let's listen to me do the preamble or postamble, whatever that means. Anyway, Chris, yeah. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash caneandrinse for early, extended, and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, canonrince.com.